This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. Today, however, I'm doing something a little different, as you know I like to do, to try to break up the uh, seriousness of talking about serial killers all the time. Although I'm not straying too far, we will still be talking a little bit about serial killers, but I will be going into the Netflix series Mindhunter, which is based on the book by John Douglas, who was an FBI agent. So I'm going to compare and contrast the show versus the book and so forth. Before I get started on that, please remember to keep an eye out on Facebook and Instagram. I promise I will be adding merch to the site. I haven't been too quick to do it because I figure it's going to be difficult to really push the merch until we can see each other. I think that'll make things easier. But keep an eye out. I will be posting stuff soon. And soon we will be able to see each other. So now that the weather's getting nicer again, hopefully it'll stay. <laughs> you know how it is. And I will be planning some public appearances, just casual things where I will have some merch with me. So make sure you stay tuned and see when we'll be doing things like that. I'm excited because Igor will once again be joining me for an episode. We're going to do something not about serial killers. We are going to talk about Hammer horror films. We're, go <laughs> we're going to discuss Hammer movies that we like and maybe don't like. We have a list of about 15 movies, which if you know Hammer, then you know they've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> So we'll be going over some of um, some of our opinions on those movies just because we enjoy them. And then we also voted in the latest Razzie Awards. So we'll be discussing that process. It was our first time to do it. So make sure you stay tuned for next Monday when that comes out. And then after that, we'll be doing an episode on baby farmers. And like I said before, it's not like the Cabbage Patch Babies, if you know what that is. So make sure you like... Share, 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 subscribe, you know what to do, do all those, that good stuff that you know you want to do. I'm going to jump on in now. Mindhunter. So there will be spoilers, just so you know. If you don't care, then proceed. If you do care, then put this on pause, read the book, watch the series, and then come back to it. Or just jump in with me. It'll be fun no matter what. The book Mindhunter had not been on my radar until I started researching serial killers. Part of what I did is I just went on like thriftbooks.com and was looking at the kind of books that they have on sale or... And I, I kept coming across this John Douglas guy and I found this Mindhunter book and this was before the show came out. And I just saw that it was called Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit. So that was intriguing. I purchased it. I actually had kind of heard about John Douglas because I, of course, love Silence of the Lambs and I had heard that the main that the main FBI agent, Jack Crawford, in Silence of the Lambs was based on a real FBI guy. He was based on John Douglas, who wrote this book. So when I, on the back of the book, it does say, it does mention that. So I was like, okay, well, this is even, this is even more reason that I should want to read this. And that gives you some other kind of point of reference, why you might have heard of this person or why you might be interested. The book, basically, he goes through and talks about some of the cases that he's been on, how he got into the FBI. He was basically like one of the first guys that was in the FBI for profiling of serial killers. So he's one of the pioneers. And he kind of, and he talks about what that was like and how they developed it. And he was involved in a lot of interesting cases. Well, then I heard the show Mindhunter was coming out on Netflix. So, you know, I was excited because I had just read the book and I was like, well, shit. This is exciting. I really enjoyed the book. It was really interesting. He's very engaging. And I could see why he would make quite an interesting character for the show. So I watched 
the first season and then I kind of took a break from some stuff because being totally immersed all the time and serial killer stuff and true crime stuff isn't always great for me. So every once in a while I kind of scale back in certain areas. Well, then I decided I wanted to do a comparative thing because you know me, I love to compare stuff. So I decided, you know what, I need to finish watching the series and I'll reread the book and I'll compare them and I think that'll be interesting to see how they stack up and all that stuff. Obviously the show had to take on a storyline as opposed to just some somebody, you know, walking through what they did. They needed to make it more like a TV show than like a book about some dude talking about his experience. <laughs> I do recommend both reading the book and watching the series. There's only two seasons right now. I'm going to go ahead and jump on in because we'll get more into the details of everything as I go through this. Hopefully, like I said, you've already watched it so you'll know what I'm talking about anyway. One of the things that I liked about the show is I had watched a bunch of the first season again because it had been a while. I'm like, I'll just watch it and this time kind of take notes and mental notes while I'm watching. So I had watched some episodes and then I started rereading the book and I noticed that some things said in the episode actually showed up in the book. And then I would notice as I was reading the book, reading further into the book and then watching the show that things would pop up that I remembered seeing in the book. So I think the show was really good about taking little tidbits that were in the book and inserting them into the show. And it seems like trivial I guess but I think it's actually pretty clever and pretty interesting that they they were able to just take bits and pieces and still add that as an element of truth or just a, a nice detail in there. I have some examples when this happened. In the book he is called John Douglas is called and I quote FBI's modern Sherlock Holmes in a newspaper. In the show I believe that someone says it to him in a bar. I think it was another cop he had impressed and so he said this guy's FBI's modern Sherlock Holmes. So the point is, whether it didn't show up in the right, the same exact context, it was interesting that they, they threw that in there. A fun one was the dirty words training. In the book, he's talking about how they had a dirty word list where if they were talking to someone and there was a transcript, if it had certain words, they would have to give that transcript to an older woman who was more experienced in the FBI instead of giving it to a younger one because it might offend her delicate sensibilities. So they had to give it to the seasoned woman so she wouldn't get offended. So in the book, he just mentions it like some of the words were shit, fuck, cunnilingus, fellatio, cunt, and dickhead. So if that was in any of the transcripts, and that's just, a, I'm sure, a small portion. He didn't list everything out, obviously. In the book's context, it's a small paragraph and he just says this is something that we had to do. In the show, they're talking about maybe we need to remove some words because the words were actually considered, they, some of the words shouldn't be considered dirty or deviant words. So they shouldn't be on the list as, as offensive or like I said, a deviation or something that should be shocking. In the show, they show Holden, who's the John Douglas figure, talking to this older FBI woman about what words should be kept and which one should they should lose. So the woman's like, okay, we'll keep fuckhead, fuckbag, gangbang, which at which point Holden says, what's right is right, which I thought was <laughs> pretty cute. And then clismophilia, and I can't remember what that is. Yeah, I really don't remember. Fuck. I'm not going to look it up either because uh, I don't want to have that in my search engine. I have all kinds of stuff in my search engine. They decided to remove from the list pussy dildo, fellatio, and cunnilingus. The two words that are exactly the same in the book as in the movie that are said to be on the list is fellatio and cunnilingus. So I know he mentioned specifically cunnilingus and fellatio were in the FBI's list. So the other ones he didn't mention specifically were on the list. 
there is a reference to being a blue flamer. In the book, it explains what it is. And in the show, when Tenchfurt meets Holden, he calls him a blue flame. And when Holden doesn't know what he's talking about, he explains it. And I'll read the book's definition. Guys this eager were described as having blue flames coming out of their asses. I thought that was another interesting detail that John mentions in the book. There were blue flamers that were so excited and that they mentioned that detail in the show. In the show, they have him playing the movie Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino in their hostage negotiation class. And that is indeed a movie that they showed in the hostage negotiation class. So that was another just little detail that I liked that they threw in there. In the show, they're going, they do road school. So they're traveling to different police offices and trying to explain what they're doing and give them tips on how maybe, you know, what they do could help them and and things like that. Well, in the show, they're at this police station and he mentions Manson and, you know, says something about it. Well, then a cop that actually worked the case was like, I think he called bullshit or something. And he's like, I know because I worked that case. And then Holden's like, oh, shit, I just uh, put my foot in my mouth. But in the book, it's interesting because he's talking about he had just turned 32 and he looked younger and he's going around telling these experienced cops that are older than him tips on how to do their jobs. So he figured, well, I better know what the hell I'm talking about because I don't want to look stupid in front of them. And I'll quote here, I wasn't stupid about it. Before I would start a session, I would ask if anyone in the class had any direct experience with any of the cases or criminals I planned on discussing that day. For example, if I was going to be discussing Charles Manson, the first thing I'd ask was, anyone here from LAPD? Anyone here work this case? And if there happened to be someone, I'd ask him to give us all the details of the case. That way, I'd make sure I didn't contradict anything that an actual participant would know to be true. Of course, it's more interesting in the show to have him called out and then learn from it that way. But in the book, he he automatically tried to to do that. And I liked that it was, when he mentioned the book, he specifically mentions Manson in the show. They specifically have Manson. So it's just those little details that I think helped make it more interesting if you've read the book and seen the, the show. A couple more here. In the book, Douglas refers to serial killers as serial killing is their job. And in the show, Edmund Kemper calls it his vocation or his job or career, and Holden is kind of taken aback and and it's like, what do you mean, your career or you consider it a job? (laughs) And Kemper's like, well, it's not a hobby. (laughs) It's way more too involved to be a hobby. So again, it's even though it's not verbatim, they still got that detail in there. In the book, Douglas mentions that his mom said you could tell a lot about how a boy treats his mom is how he will treat his girlfriend. In the show, Holden's girlfriend says, is talking about him meeting her mom. And she says, well, she's going to ask you about your mom because her mom feels that the way that your your relationship with your mom reflects the way that you will treat your girlfriend. So it's that same idea. Holden is talking about everyone has their rock where everybody has something that will catch them up and catch them off guard. He gives an example about his mom asked him like over dinner, they were out to eat and it was him and his dad and his mom. And out of nowhere, she's like, have you had sex? And I think he was in college and he's like, well, and he was totally floored. You know, did not expect that at all. So he gives that an example of how everybody has something that will catch them off guard. And you just need to figure out what that is when you're dealing with killers or perps. He tells that story. In the book, he mentions Dorothy Ottenau Lewis. He mentions her directly. And that name should spark a light in your brain, a blue flame, if you will. Because I did an episode on Dorothy Ottenau Lewis's documentary, Guilty by Reason of Insanity. So in the book, he mentions her 
he talks about how she was on an, the author Shawcross case, and he talks about a little bit about her work at Bellevue. In the show, it's like in the first episode or something, a professor at the university starts talking about Bellevue and some experiments and some ideas going on there. He does not mention Dorothy Ottenau Lewis specifically, but Bellevue is the name of the institution that she was working with, so that perked my ears up. Again, that's just another little tidbit that they wove into the tapestry of the show. My last example is that in one section of the book, it's just like a sentence where uh, they're talking about how you can, I don't know if manipulate is the right word, but how you can kind of make people sweat to try to get them to confess. So, so there's a black cop who knows that the perp is racist. I think it's like during a trial or something, the guy is on the stand or someplace where he can't reach the cop. The cop happens to be next to the guy's girlfriend, who's white. Since he knows that it's going to piss off this guy, he starts to get stand closer to the guy's girlfriend just to make him sweat. So it's just they mention that detail and passing in the show as well. But it, it caught my ears and eyes when I, when I saw that. So those are some of the ways in which they tied the book in with the show. Some other examples that were in the book that they tied into the show. There's... One sentence in the book where he talked about someone who took hostages and the next thing I know he had taken all of his clothes off and they had put all the clothes on. And in the TV show, there is a scene where a guy is taking hostages and then he's just naked and wants his wife. The Tickling Principle, which is going to be the name of my first CD, I don't know. In the book, it is one paragraph. And in the show, I think it bleeds into two episodes, maybe. But they get way more into it. But it gets the gist across. It Maybe some of the details weren't in the book. But there was a principal who was tickling students' feet. And that principal was fired. In the book, he does mention a guy who drives to see his ex, finds out she's cheating on him, so he goes and rapes a girl. There was an elderly woman attacked and her dog was killed. I think in the show, they ended up having him do it multiple times. And then they interview him and it's a bigger deal. Um, in the book, I'm, I feel like it was just a couple sentences. There is a whole, I think it's like three episodes, where they talk about how this man found a woman's body at the dump. And they were having trouble. It was a small town. They're having trouble figuring out who it is. And it wound up being two male killers and a female accomplice that did it. And they really dug into it. He does go into quite a bit of detail in the book about it. They did use a lot of that in the episode. Episodes. Another one they covered a lot and it was covered pretty well in the book is the um the young girl that was killed with a rock that's when i was referencing the rock earlier it's it's that scene they carried through that quite a bit he makes references to the forces of evil in the stocking strangler and talking to the guy who said he was a forces of evil in the book i think it's just a few paragraphs in the show they they actually show him the guy who claimed to be the forces of evil william hance they interview him and he's a big old dumb son of a bitch well, i don't know if he's big but he was dumb and they don't actually he doesn't talk about verbatim what the guy says in the interview they just said they talked to him and that he admitted that he made up the forces of evil so again those are some more ways in which they tied the they took things from the book and and put them into the show to reiterate, Holden Ford in the show is based on John, du John Douglas, who wrote the book. Bill Tench on the show, which is basically his partner, is based on Robert Ressler. Now, D John Douglas also worked closely with Roy Hazelwood some. In the show, they make 
Holden, even though he's based loose, he's based on John Douglas, they make him stuffier than John Douglas is. And the real John Douglas seems to be a mix between Bill Tench and Holden Ford on the show because you see moments where Bill Tench is able to tell jokes and and be a little looser and have fun at parties and things like that. Well, Holden just always wants to talk business. So John Douglas talks about pranks that he used to pull and how sometimes his humor got him into trouble because he was trying to balance the horror of his life. So he might make what seemed to be inappropriate comments. So he seemed like he was more fun than Holden. But I understand why they made Holden stuffy. And I think that it was the right move. And again, this isn't like they didn't say that we're making this exactly based everything on. I mean, honestly, some people might not even know that there is a book. So, you know, but the goal wasn't, I, I believe, it was just to make it as close to real as you could while still having a good story. That being said, the book started with him winding up in a coma in the middle of being called to help confer about the Green River Killer. Thankfully, he had two people with him. And I'm going to read what happened because it's fucking crazy. And it really, it really got to me. And it's the beginning of the book. So I have to admit, like, I was like, oh, God, when they put this in the show, this is going to be awesome. So basically, he wasn't feeling well. He had been starting to have what he felt might be panic attacks. But then he felt like he was coming down with the flu. And he's like, look, I'm just going to stay in bed. You guys go to go do what you need to do. Just let me rest all day and then I'll be good to go. He doesn't show up for breakfast. And they go to his door and he doesn't answer. They finally get someone from the front desk to open the room. They heard moaning from inside the room. This is the quoting the book. They kicked in the door and rushed inside. They found me on the floor in what they described as a frog-like position, partially dressed, apparently trying to reach the telephone. The left side of my body was convulsing and Blaine said I was burning up. The hotel called the Swedish hospital, which immediately dispatched an ambulance. In the meantime, Blaine and Ron stayed on the phone with the emergency room, giving them my vitals. My temperature was 107 degrees, my pulse 220. My left side was paralyzed, and in the ambulance, I continued having seizures. The medical report described me with doll's eyes, open, fixed, and unfocused. As soon as we arrived at the hospital, they packed me in ice and began massive intravenous doses of phenobarbital in an attempt to control the seizures. The doctor told Blaine and Rod he could practically put the entire city of Seattle to sleep with what they were giving me. He also told the two agents that despite everyone's best efforts, I was probably going to die. A CAT scan showed the right side of my brain had ruptured and hemorrhaged from high fever. In layman's terms, the doctor told them, his brain has been fried to a crisp. So that's some pretty heavy shit, and he was in a coma for a while. It was uh, it, it was partially because he hadn't been taking care of himself because he was burning himself out from working these cases. So that was a big fucking deal. And like I said, I was like, I wonder how they're going to handle that in the show. That that should be interesting. In the show, Edmund Kemper hugs him, Holden runs down the hall and collapses. And then that was like the last episode of season one. Season two pops up and they're like, hey, it was a panic attack. It was a panic attack. That's it. When you know what really happened and then you see that, it's pretty anti-fucking-climatic. But I understand that they have their own agenda. They have a path that they're going on and they have plans. So while I was disappointed, I think may- maybe they could be setting up. He, at this point, he had been doing it in real life. He had been doing it for quite a while and so he was burnt out. So I guess it makes sense that just doing it for however long in 10 episodes... He probably wouldn't be burned out enough to have a brain hemorrhage. 
So <laughs> I get it makes sense that at this point he would probably would just have panic attack. And that's maybe we'll be building up and maybe we'll see that coma happen or that collapse happen later in the series. I don't know. Moving on with the characters in the show. Dr. Wendy Carr is based on Dr. Ann Burgess. Dr. Burgess did get them grant money and assisted them in coming up with the interview procedure. That's pretty much all that I could tell was similar as far as them. So basically they're just like, well, she fit the, she did this thing. So we'll, we'll put her in there because she was a key character. But let's expand on that and make that our own thing. So I don't know a lot. Of, I don't know anything else about Dr. Ann Burgess. So I don't know if she was homosexual. I don't know anything else. And I didn't look it up because I'm trying to keep my compulsive, super deep diving research under control <laughs> because it will take over my life even more so than it already has. In the show, they have the whole arc with her where she is a lesbian in, in a time where the FBI, Hoover didn't like women. He was leery of women. Women were not a thing in the FBI when Hoover was alive. Once he died, however, things started to loosen up a little bit. I like that they added some depth to the show by giving her that complicated arc where she has to feel like she hi she's hiding part of herself from her work life and the complications that come from that, as well as, um, you know, being a woman and then also not being non-FBI, being brought into an FBI thing. And some of the things that she faces with that, I thought that was an interesting spin, I guess, to it. Holden's girlfriend on the show... Debbie, she's loosely based on John's real wife, Pam. He met Pam at a bar while she was in college, which was shown on the show. He met Debbie at a bar while she was in college. People mistrust the FBI in real life and on the show. And then there is a moment where in the book, people are they're eating or something and people are looking at him funny. And he's like, what the hell? And Pam is like, well, you have a comb in your pocket that looks like an antenna. So people think that you're like wired and that you're going to fib on them or you're, you know, watching them. And there is a moment on the show when that exact thing happens and she pulls the comb out of his pocket or, you know, pulls the thing out of his pocket because people think that he's bugged. So that is all accurate to the book and to real life. And the difference is in real life, he marries the woman, but on the show, they end up breaking up. In the book, they don't really go too much into what Pam was like. So I don't know how much Debbie could be like her, but I, again, I'm assuming as with Dr. Wendy Carr's character that they did their own thing with her to, to make it more interesting. There was no mention of anyone in the book that had an adopted son that wound up being implicated in a baby killing. So that was all for the show. And, and that it's possible, I guess, that that could be based on something real life. I'm assuming they made that whole arc up for the show. So, you know, in the show, his partner, Bill Tench, was married and they had adopted a son. In the show, they have the son starts wetting his bed. He doesn't really he doesn't really talk the first while. And then he is with these kids who wind up smothering a toddler. And then he starts regressing and doesn't really show any kind of remorse for what happened or discomfort for what happened other than just his regressive behavior. I think it's interesting they're obviously setting up maybe that little boy will grow up to be a serial killer. And and I do like the dynamic of where Bill is going through that personally and then he's confronted with Henley who helped Dean Coral as a teenager. He helped Dean Coral get other kids for Dean Coral to torture and kill. He feels like he needs to defend Henley. So there's there's just a lot of different levels on which it makes things difficult for potential. I think it brings a lot of interesting things to light and shows it just gives it more depth 
to have those kind of conflicts in there on top of the regular things happening. Like, it's enough just to be <laughs> talking to serial killers and dealing with all that, let alone having that something like that in your personal life that hits so close to home. In the show, he was censured for, quote, for doing an article that he wasn't supposed to do. And what actually happened is he just made a comment to somebody that didn't know that there was a reporter around and the reporter kind of blew it out of proportion. So he got in trouble for that. So there were things like that that happened to him where he got his hand slapped a few times. But in the show, he actually, Holden gets his boss fired, which were forced to retire. And so that's like a whole big deal. But I didn't see anything like that in the book. So obviously that was another thing that they made to make the show more interesting. And, and it was more interesting. So I'm kind of glad that they did it. As far as the accuracy of the serial killers that they interview... First of all, they do a hell of a job making the actors look like the real people. You could tell they took a lot of time to make sure that they were as accurate as they could be as far as looks. And they even do little details like there's a, a scene where they show cops at the jury room bar. And as soon as I saw the jury room bar, I knew, well, that's where Kemper used to hang out because that's where cops hung out and he liked to hang out with cops. So in the jury room bar, someone does mention Kemper. I, I like that they took those little details and inserted those in there to give it, again, that feeling of authenticity. On the show, he attempts suicide, and I couldn't remember if that's something that he did, but I looked it up, I just double-checked it, and he did try to commit suicide a couple times in real life. And there was a scene where they, uh, it's subtle, and if you don't know what's going on, I'm not sure that you would catch on, because he's in a chapel, and he's talking, and I believe what he's actually doing is he was recording a book on tape because Kemper really did go on to do like audiobooks. So you can get an audiobook that is read by Edmund Kemper, the serial killer who's in prison. So I believe that's what he's doing there. So just these little details and things. And the details that he mentions, I've read some things about him. So I feel like I know the basic details pretty well. Nothing that he said caught me off guard as not being true. So everything seemed to be pretty, I mean, down to where he buried a woman's head in the yard out front of his mom's window and that was buried so it was facing his mom's window because he said he, his mom always wanted people to look up to her. So it's things like that he did. His mom did keep him in the basement away from his sisters and things like that. So I feel they were very good at paying attention to those details. When he finally in interviews Manson, no, I don't know... I haven't researched a lot about Manson because Manson's been everywhere. And I feel like I'm kind of tired of him <laughs> because he is like everywhere. So I kind of just I'm like, eh, you know, like I've read a few little things here and then, you know, you can't help but come across some stuff. And I have watched some documentaries, but I do think that they did a good job of getting that personality of his out there. Like the actor was really good about that, having the um, charismatic talking in circles, keeping you off center kind of thing. In the book, he does go way more into detail. So in the show, he they talk to him like five minutes or something. It's, it's pretty short because then Bill gets pissed off and walks out. Well, in the book, they he says they talk for hours. And then Manson actually gets into more details about things. So in the book, it's way more detailed. But I think that as far as it comes to the show, they were good at showing that aspect of Manson and then to turn right around and have him interviewing Tex because Holden was kind of like well maybe Manson was maybe he wasn't as dangerous as we think maybe they pushed him into being the guy that he felt he had to be 
<laughs> but then when he talks to Watson, Watson's like, oh, he can make you do anything. Like, he can make you think anything. So then it's kind of flips him around. And, and he does still, in the book, he does still come to, like, I think that where he said, I feel like Manson did lead them and push them to doing things. But then they pushed Manson into holding his words and, you know, keeping keeping down that path when maybe he wouldn't have kept going down that path unless they, you know, because he didn't want to back down because he had to be the one in charge. Anyway, I like the way that they handled the whole Manson thing in there, and I think it was well done. Richard Speck was another one that he interviewed in the book and on the show. From what I know about Richard Speck, the thing that threw me off when I watched it the first time is that Speck has this bird while they're doing the interview and I can't remember what they say that triggers it but then he just throws the bird in the fan and the bird dies and they're like okay what the fuck and in real life what happened is he befriended a bird in prison was feeding it and taking care of it and someone was like are you even allowed to have birds and so he like they basically were like you can't have that bird so he killed it and basically like if I can't fucking have it no one can fucking have it you know, like, oh, we'll show you. It was different in real life, but the spirit of it is the same. So I think, again, for dramatic effect, I understand why they did it that way. And I think that it's still, since in the, it's in the same spirit of how things happened, I think that it's fine that they did it that way. Not that they give a shit what I think, but <laughs> but just for my own peace of mind, I'm, I am okay with how they handled that. It, it doesn't always have to be exactly the way things happened as long as you get the the overall truth out there. As pretentious as I sound. Brutos is what I did an episode on Jerry Brutos. The thing that I'm almost positive they said, either he said it or someone was talking about Brutos in the episode where he went and he invited a girl over, then like put on a mask or something, had her stripped down, took pictures of her, and then runs out afterwards. So he does this, pretending to be somebody else, runs out, he comes back in, pretending to be himself, and he says it was his twin brother. So on the show, someone says he pretended to be his own twin brother to get away with what he had just done to the girl. In my research for the episode, and I checked in several places, so that's why it kind of caught me off guard, is the things that I saw said that someone grabbed him and, like, locked him up, and then he just got out, and he didn't even know who it was. I don't know, I guess it's... At heart, I guess it doesn't really matter because he still pretended that it was someone else that did it. So that's the part that matters. There is something, I think, a little more fucked up about pretending to be your own twin. So I think that is actually a little more interesting. Maybe that's why they chose to go with it. Maybe there's some references that I didn't come upon where that's what he actually said. But that's the only thing I really noticed was off kilter with Brutos. Other than that, everything else seemed to line up. Berkowitz, nothing really jumped out to me. I haven't done as much reading on him. I've done some, but I didn't really see anything or hear anything that really upset me or seemed out of place. In the book, he doesn't mention Henley. So I referenced Henley early, earlier, how he assisted Dean Coral. I know some about Dean Coral because I've read a book or two about him. I don't really know how Henley, Henley acts, but since they try to be so close with all the other ones, I'm assuming they did the research and that he was pretty true to what he what the guy was like in real life. Let me get into BTK. One thing that I really liked is the teasers. So the very first episode, 
It does. It doesn't say anything other than like Wichita, Kansas shows a dude with mustache acting like a dick about someone's dog. I knew right off the bat that was Dennis Rader who was the BTK because that's what he did. Is that was one of the things is he he took his little menial roles as like um he was like and I can't remember. he was in some kind of capacity where he could ticket people for their dogs. I think he actually had someone's dog put down, which was super fucked. So they tease. It's just like a that that's it. It's just like three seconds where you see this happen and then it goes on with the episode. So if you don't know anything about Dennis Rader, you don't know enough about it, you'll be like, well, what the fuck is that about? Well, then the next episode, they just show an ADT van and this dude with a mustache. And as soon as I saw the ADT van, I'm like, yep, that's definitely Raider because Raider worked for ADT security. Again, there's nothing else other than, you know, Wichita, Kansas or Park City, Kansas and ADT. So... Those of us who are in the know are like, they're building to something. They're they're just teasing. And then the next one, it shows him quoting ADT. Then the next one, it shows them mailing a let shows him mailing a letter and he's wearing gloves. The next one, it shows him working on knots. So if you're not quite sure, no pun intended, who it is, that's getting you closer to knowing who it probably is. He's laying out equipment, including a gun. There's one where it starts that he's, he's drinking at a table. He looks angry, kind of looks at his watch rinses the cup out and leaves and that's referencing where there was a time he was going to attack someone when they came home he was drinking out of one of their cups and they didn't come home like he expected so he got pissed off he rinses the cup out and leaves so that that's actually a thing that happened so again you just see it kind of escalating then you see him burning pages with these um like drawings of women in bondage his wife catches him performing autoerotic asphyxiation. He's in a dresser slip and wearing a mask. The mask is one of the creepier things about Dennis Rader for me is that he did have a mask and it did look like that. And there's one victim where he actually took pictures of her in that mask. So it's it's kind of the, the dressing as a woman isn't, you know, that doesn't that's not a thing like that doesn't bother me. It's not necessarily a big deal. It's just the um, that you know that he ends up killing people that makes the whole thing creepy. And of course, his wife, this is in the 70s, 80s, and she's more traditional. So she's not used to that kind of behavior to her that that is like a huge fucking deal. And it's something she doesn't understand. So what's interesting is the episode after they show just that blurb of his wife catching him and doing this, then he's sleeping on the couch. She brings him blankets and a pillow and then hands him this book or pamphlet about sexual deviancy. And she gives him a kiss and goes, to bed so you can see I think it's really good how they're just showing they don't say anything it's all just a few seconds of activity and it just tells a whole story and you can just see how it's amping up then they show um, they actually have them get files on the case and visit the Otero house which is the first family that he killed then they go back to some blurbs like he's doodling at the library and doodling you know bondage and killing women and fun things like that that are healthy wholesome fun that you would draw at the library as you would. He buries some stuff in the yard, which is including the mask. So you're assuming it's a slip and some of the other incriminating things. Then he's making copies in a library, which is something that he did. That's one of the ways that they tried to catch him was to try to find a Xerox machine that he would use because he was near a campus. So he would go to the college campus and make copies. Then he watches a couple and he drives away, which I'm assuming that he was expecting her to be alone. And then when there was a guy there, he drove off because he, he preferred... He might not change his plan if there's a dude there. That happened a couple of times. But he preferred to make it easier when, it, when the woman was by herself. And then the last thing that they show at the end of season two is he's back in the slip with a mask, has a camera, and then he has driver's license and trophies on the bed of women that he's killed. I love 
that they just put in those blurbs. And like I said, that they are kind of building that story. And part of what I like about that is because it feels like this is going on while they're the rest of the things are happening. So as their lives are going on and they're looking at all these things, he's doing, he's, you know, drinking at his victim's house. He's, he's making copies of the library of letters that he's going to be sending to the cops and, and things like that. You just see where it feels like this is what's happening and nobody's knowing. And that they are looking at the BTK and look, look, this BTK is is doing these things and they have no idea that it's him. So I like that how they peppered that in there and then are making it a bigger and bigger part of the show. That was interesting to me. And and the things that they, like I said, obviously I know a little bit about BTK. So the things that they did, I everything seemed pretty on point, everything they mentioned. The last thing that I wanted to go over about the show was the Atlanta child murders. That was the whole like last part of season two the whole episode arc was had the Atlanta child the at kid case in real life kids were being killed a mom of one of the victims formed a group there was a task force made the FBI was called to come in when they thought one of the kids was a victim of kidnapping this time Hazelwood joined him not wrestler so in the show obviously obviously it's always Bill Tench because that's his main dude in the show in the show, they had them doing tests to see if the kids would follow a black man if he offered them $5 or a white man if he offered them $5. And on the show, they only went with the black man. And the white man was just like yelled at a lot by parents that were nearby. <laughs> but in the book, he says that it did not matter what color the person was. The kid would go with them for $5. But it did seem to be that white people did stand out in that area. In the book... He didn't think the, all the murders were linked, but he thought 11 were. In the show, he does say that he doesn't think all of them were linked as well, but I don't remember him saying specifically the number. But in the book, he says 11. There was, as in the show, there was a guy that claimed to be the killer, and he said, you'll find a body out on this road. They go, and, and Douglas does say, um, let's pretend and look, let's pretend we're dumb and look on the wrong side of the road, and then we'll see how he reacts. Of course, they didn't find any body, but then... Later on, they did find a body along that road. So that's how they knew the killer was paying attention. So that is true. That really did happen that way, at least according to John Douglas in his book. There was a guy that was arrested for a bag of pornography that had semen on it near the bodies. They weren't like two feet away or something. They were just in the, like the general vicinity. And when they found the guy, it turns out it really was <laughs> the poor man, his wife, just had a baby and so he had not been able to have sexual release so he was just blowing off steam and so he went to the woods and did his thing and then you know left the stuff and was you know he was done with it that really did happen as well the concert really happened where frank sinatra and sammy davis jr came and gave a concert they tried to interview people to be security guards to try to find the killer and just like in the show there was a lot of red tapes so they weren't able to do it in time so the, the show was good about showing that red tape. And as far as the red tape is, I'm almost positive. I was trying to go back and find it. But in the book, I swear I remember him talking about the crosses. They were going to purchase crosses to place at for memorials for the children that had been killed. And to also use that as a way to maybe bring the perp out because they thought the killer would come and come around there and that they could find him. But that the FBI, there was so much fucking red tape that they didn't get the cr crosses in time. And there was just a bunch of ridiculousness like on the show so that is a plausible thing <laughs> that there is so much red tape that the fbi couldn't even just get some crosses made without a big fucking deal the last thing is wayne williams himself now i don't know a lot about wayne williams i haven't read a lot about the atlanta kid killer case i do know that 
it has been controversial whether he was actually the killer or not. In the show, I, I had not heard that maybe he was trying to get kids to promote them musically and that he's specifically looking for, I think, like 11 to 21 year olds. I didn't know anything about that. So that was an interesting detail. I reread the chapter after I watched because I had read that section before I finished the show. So when I finished the show and that wound up being like the big last three episodes, I read the reread the chapter again and that was not in the book. He didn't mention that specific detail. He mentions a bunch of other stuff. And in the book, he seems to be pretty sure that Wayne Williams at least killed a few of the people, but he is not convinced that he killed all 29. He is still upset that they closed the cases on the other kids because he doesn't think that the killer were caught for all of the kids. I think there were like 27 people that were left without knowing who their killer was. In an interesting side note, I have started collecting comics and I've been trying not to for years because as I've mentioned, I have a compulsive issue and Part of it is when I would come upon comics that I was interested in, I would find like number three and there might be God knows how many, you know, even if there's five and I just find number three and then I know that like maybe I can never find the rest and I have to be okay just having number three in the series. That's not really easy for me, but <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, some of them, the covers are cool, the art's fun. So I've kind of picked some things up here and there over the years. Well, here's a plug for GameSwap. Todd had worked at GameSwap for a while, so I became familiar with the people, the crew there and Matt Brassfield is really into horror, so he had started to procure some horror comics. So he started to put out this box of just horror comics, and he knew that I'm into horror stuff. So he was asking me about it, and he would send me pictures and say, hey, are you interested in this? I'm going to be putting this out if you're interested. He happened to find some Psycho Killers editions of these comics that came out in, looks like the 90s. One of the recent ones that I got happened to be about Wayne, Wayne Williams. So I read over it tonight I hadn't had a chance yet and in it it does talk about him trying to become a music promoter even though he had no ties to the music industry <laughs> what's interesting about these comics is I have um I've read a couple others the art isn't great and sometimes it just looks downright derpy in some cases <laughs> and it's weird because some panels are better than other panels I don't know what that's about the thing that I think is the most interesting is the details and the details from the ones that I've looked at so far seem to be pretty accurate this one does not the person who wrote this does not think that Wayne Williams did it it is very obvious they feel that he was not guilty and that basically he was railroaded so I found that kind of intriguing that they they put that spin on it and like the whole last page is saying well these are leads that weren't even followed and I don't know enough about it basically I've just seen a few things so I don't know enough about it to feel like I can make any kind of educated statement about his guilt or not guilt I just find the whole thing interesting that that there was so much surrounding so much chaos surrounding it and then it's the uh, synchronicity thing where I happen to be, I happen to watch something about Atlanta child murders and I also happen to get a comic about Wayne Williams at the same time. Gotta love that synchronicity. It's always interesting to see how they, how anyone handles this kind of stuff in no matter what format, whether it's comic books or regular books or TV shows. The last thing I want to talk about as far as the show is what could still be used on the show. What was in the book but left out of the series that they might be able to use, even if it's just, just a small part in an episode or whether they can make it into two or three episodes. He mentions William Hirons which is known as, I believe, the lipstick killer, because on one of the, at one of the scenes, he wrote lipstick on the wall like, God, you know, somebody stopped me because I 
will keep killing or something like that. He's another one where people aren't sure that he actually is the one who was the killer. So there's been some contention there and and a lot of uh, questioning about that. In the book, Douglas says that at first he thought maybe Hirons was innocent, but then when he interviewed him, he changed his mind, decided that he was guilty. So that was uh, kind of an interesting thing to see. Uh, But they can always get more into the Hirons case. He also worked on the Trailside Killer case, which I don't really know much about that one. So that might be interesting. I don't know how detailed that case was. But again, even if they make it just a small part of it, that could be something. There was a woman found on a roof of an apartment building. She had been brutalized. And the details, I can understand why maybe they wouldn't want to put all the details and and have that in there. But you can always leave some details out if you're worried it's going to be too much. But like, one of the things is the person who killed the woman pooped next to her body and then covered it. So then they're like, is that a sign of something? Were they just up there so long that they couldn't hold it? And then they were ashamed that they did it, so they covered it? It was just, it's like a whole thing. It turns out that it was a person in her building that did it. So as you can see, that one was a pretty interesting case. And that goes on for a few pages in the book. He also worked the Yorkshire Ripper case, with uh, which is Peter Sutcliffe. There was an FBI guy whose wife put a hit on him. The wife of an FBI agent put a hit on him. And amazingly enough, he lived and he was able to point her out. So good luck trying to uh, kill an FBI agent, wifey. He assisted in the Richard Hansen case and then also the 22 caliber caliber killer case. So those are cases that he could, they could always delve into a little bit more. There was what they call, what he called an all-American girl who was killed in her new house. And it was one of those weird things where everybody liked her. So what the hell happened? And it turns out like, I think it's, it's a, the friend of a neighbor did it. There's an FBI stenographer that was raped and murdered. There was a kid that went missing, and it turns out the mom is the one who had kidnapped the kid. She actually killed the kid, but then pretended that the kid was missing. It was actually kind of an interesting little thing in there. I think it was only like a page long or a couple pages long. Someone caught a murderer by putting his handwriting on a billboard. Like he had some kind of work order he had signed, but no one knew who what his name was. They just knew what he looked like, something like that. So a cop thought, well, let's put his put it on a billboard maybe someone would recognize the handwriting and I think like three people who had nothing to do with each other all identified who he was they all pointed to the same person because they recognized his handwriting that just blows my mind so that's kind of a cool little thing they could maybe put in there there's the Tylenol murders which I'm sure you've all heard about how that someone was poisoning some Tylenol some people died they never found out who it was and there's some you know obviously there's a lot of mystery around that and he was involved in the investigation for that as well he was also involved with Arthur Shawcross's case and the Green River Killer. And at the time of the book, they didn't know who the Green River Killer was. So that's another thing that's interesting about the time period that he was active is that like BTK and Green River Killer, they went on for decades. There was quite a, I've actually have several books where they don't know who the killers were at the time they wrote the book. So it's weird to see, you know, that when obviously now we know. They can always delve into that more. Obviously, if the series doesn't go on longer, maybe they'll never know who it is in the series because it won't go on long enough. But they can at least talk about his experience. And maybe then they can get to the part where he has his hemorrhage and has a big old coma. As far as the future of the show, it is up in the air. I remember seeing a while ago that Netflix had not renewed the show for a third season, which made me sad. And especially now that I've finished, because at that point that I saw it, I still had like half of the second season to go. And uh, so I think on one episode, I made a comment like, well, maybe I won't, maybe I won't miss it when it's gone. Maybe I won't like it. But I did. I liked both seasons. I think they did a good job on. So I'm kind of bummed. I was really bummed 
when I was watching the last episode, I just uh, I feel like they've got so much potential for the show and I think they do a good job on it that I'm really hoping to pick it up. I did see articles recently where it's not definitely canceled forever. It's just basically put on a hold because, well, I read something first. It was because the budget was so high. And then I read that the director of it is just so fucking busy. Like he's just got so much going on. And then plus he did also make a comment that compared to the watchership, I don't <laughs> the I can't think of the right word. The amount of people watching the show compared to how much it costs to make the show it is not great. So the queen doth demand and decree that you should watch Mindhunter and get those numbers up on Netflix. Because maybe if they, they see a ton of people start watching it, then maybe that will get them to be able to throw some money at it. And maybe the director will be able to have carve some time out. The actors seem to be on board with it. Now, the problem is, is now that they've committed to other things, you never know how things will work out as far as scheduling. So it may be another year or two before we see another one, but I would still, I would be happy even if it takes another year or two. I would still be happy to see a third season of Mindhunter. Or even if they do like a fucking movie. Whatever. Just give me some more. I think uh, there's enough here that they have to work with that they can, they can do some more stuff with it. My overall thoughts, I think they do a really good job of tying things in from the book into the show, using the book as a as a foundation and for fleshing things out, but then also doing their own thing with it. I think they're good at, at having their own original things is what I'm trying to say. I, I think they, they've created their own nice little world and they're they're good about trying to keep it accurate. So I've I've enjoyed it. Again, I kind of wish there were more. I highly recommend if you haven't watched it, watch it. If you've watched it, watch it again. Like I said, let's get those numbers up. Watching it again, because like I said, I watched some of the, the first season twice. You know, I always catch new things. So that's the things, you know, when there's so many details is you catch little things each time. Read the book. He's got, John Douglas has quite a few books. And Mindhunter has so far been my favorite. I've read, I think, two or three of the others. I feel like I've hunted all the thoughts out of my mind. So I'm going to call it a day. Thank you for tuning in. We've got another Igor and Queen Victoria episode coming next Monday, where again, we discuss Hammer movies and the Razzie Awards. And then after that, we'll talk about Baby Farmers and we have some other fun stuff coming up for you as well. Thank you for entering the Lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Shit, fuck, cunnilingus, fellatio, cunt, and dickhead.